guys are barrels of fun. This is section 422. Welcome from the $5 seats. This is the section 422 podcast. It is Wednesday, August 12th. Derek Van Riper here with Will Salmon. Take two of our podcasts for the week. Take one actually took place on the regularly scheduled day on Monday, and then the Brewers made a bunch of moves and shook things up to the point where that episode really wasn't useful before it was even published. So uh, we're actually recording on Wednesday this week to account for the ebbs and flows of how things have changed. So on this episode, we're going to discuss the activation of Luis Urias, the decision to designate Logan Morrison for assignment, ongoing concerns about the defense of Keston Hira at second base, and the strikeout woes that have just plagued this Brewers offense to this point in the young season. But, you know, Will, we're talking about a season that is only going to last 60 games, and we're now about a quarter of the way through it. So concerns seem a lot greater, right? You take every game, you multiply it by 2.7, and that's how much progress you've actually made compared to a normal season. So if things seem a bit urgent, it's because they actually are, even in a season where we're going to have 16 teams qualifying for the postseason. So let's start with Luis Urias. He comes back from the IL Monday afternoon, makes his debut on Monday night. One thing we were wondering about when we were recording the episode that will go unheard is where does he fit in defensively? Will he be part of the solution at third base? And it didn't take long for Craig Council to show us that they do, in fact, trust Urias to play some third base. Yeah, I feel like that episode's like part of like a lost tape or something now, right? From like back in the day that nobody, no, first of all, nobody wants to probably hear at this point, but nobody will be finding anyway either. So, yeah, man. But um, yeah, Luis Urias, he could play three different positions, right? Second base, shortstop, and I guess now third base. We could add that to it. The Padres played him there once, I believe, while he was with that organization. So I had asked Craig Council just about his comfort level with Urias playing that position because Keston here is the everyday second baseman. And Orlando Arsh has been hitting the ball relatively consistently, especially by his standards. He's been a bright spot, I guess, in that lineup card. And so that left them with really just third base if they wanted all three together, even though Eric Sogard's played pretty well too in his own right with getting on base, seeing a lot of pitches, playing pretty well defensively too. So they have that... I don't want to call it like a logjam there because it's sort of by design in a lot of ways. The redundancies that they've acquired, particularly up the middle and with versatility in their infield. So I don't want to say it's a logjam, but there's certainly more players than there are opportunities to play for those positions. So I like Urias. I think he's a, a very good player for this team. I'm not sure if he will develop or do enough considering his circumstances that he was dealt this year in 2020 to make that much of a difference. But I feel like beyond 2020, he's an important player. And I say that because his contact skills were really good. They've always been very strong and defensively. He he's more than adequate. It seems at those two positions and perhaps even three. Yeah. A quick reminder too. I mean, Luis Urias coming through the Padres system has hit everywhere he's played he's a career 308 397 433 slash line player over six different minor league seasons he got to more power than ever at AAA. that was at el paso which is a hitter friendly park in a hitter friendly league in a hitter friendly year with a hitter friendly baseball 
But with all of those caveats, you still look at him as a guy that, you know, age to level has been really impressive. I mentioned this back in the winter when he was acquired. If you looked at prospect rankings before the 2018 season or before the 2019 season, you'd often see Luis Urias ranked very closely to Keston Hira on most overall prospect lists. And I think the big difference here is that Urias should be a plus defender at second base. He's a capable defender at shortstop. I think if you can play both spots up the middle, you can generally play third base. And that's why we're seeing the Brewers really dabble in that. I still think the range of outcomes is pretty wide. And I think it's right to probably lower the expectations for this season because of the wrist injury that he had back in the famous original spring training in March. And when you consider that he missed a lot of time uh, ramping up in summer camp as a result of being away for COVID. But I look at Urias and I see a guy that with the OBP skills that he has flashed, he could be the solution to top the order. Eric Sogard's really been the primary option holding onto that job so far. But if Sogard were to slide into more of a utility role and Urias remains a fixture in the order, I think Urias could finish this season as the Brewers' leadoff hitter. I think he has good enough skills to actually take that job and really run with it, which is not really to say that Sogard doesn't belong there, but it's belief that you get a little more from Urias because the power growth we saw last year to me was encouraging. You get that plus defense around the infield. I think the other question here, though, is, how much do you want to DH Keston Hira? Because now that you have Urias available, if you want to stick with the Sogard, Jerko sort of platoon at third base, maybe you actually play Ryan Braun a little more in the outfield and at least DH Keston Hira when you have your ground ball heavy pitchers on the mound, right? When you have Brett Anderson starting, at least, you're going to probably move Hira to the DH spot on those days. Could you see Hira maybe DHing half the time? I mean, is that a possibility? Or do you think the presence of Braun makes it difficult to do that because all these moving parts mean you either have to play Ben Gamble a lot in the outfield or you have to be willing to take Keston Hira's glove away from second base and use him in the DH spot at the expense of playing Braun in the outfield. It's so tricky, right? I tried to outline all of those things in an article when Luis Rios made his Brewers debut, and, it was, and it's challenging because there's just so many different layers. There's a trickle-down effect Every single time you move that guy, insert him out of position, there's like three other positions that are kind of affected in some in some way, some obviously more direct than others. But, you know, just on the that point that you made on Urias and, and how good he can be, I, I think that I'm high on – you're probably more higher on him than I am for this particular season. Um, and I think that that view, I understand it and – I like the overall outlook for him and his career. I'm, I'm just not sure if he gets to that point yet in 2020. And that that's why I say like, you know, Sogard's still a valuable part of this equation here or an important part uh, because he's still doing his job. Um, now, could I see Sogard's job diminishing a bit and him coming into games in the fifth or sixth inning as a pinch hitter and then staying there? Yeah, definitely. I think that that's something that could – that could happen more frequently than it has before Urias's arrival. And with Ryan Braun, I mean, that's like, that's the trickiest part of the whole thing, right? Because it's like, you want him in the lineup. You want him doing more than just DHing. But so far this year, he hasn't done more than DHing. And I had asked Ryan after the game on Tuesday night, his first game, his first game back from the IL, uh, just about, his comfort level with playing some of the field because 
when Lorenzo Cain opted out, Craig Council said, look, we're moving Ivesel Garcia to center field, and we're gonna we're looking at a situation where Ben Gamble and when he's ready, Brian Braun will occupy the right field spot. Obviously Christian Yell is still in left field. But like I said, you know, Brian Braun has yet to play a game in the field this year. And so I asked him just his level of comfort with the finger issue. Obviously, he was able to swing a bat, but he also said that he played a little bit of right field in Appleton that day where he received the five at-bats. And so that's good, uh, but he also said that it's a little bit harder because throwing the ball with the finger issue is different than swinging the bat. So I don't know how different. I don't know if that's going to stop him or limit him or have us wait a little bit longer than maybe we thought we would, but I feel like their most optimal configuration includes having Ryan Braun in right, Keston here at DH, Urias at second, and probably Sogard or Jerko, depending on who's pitching at third, and RC at short right now. And all those things could change. You know, RC can stop hitting tomorrow, and I don't think anybody would be shocked, right, if he just started to hit a skid, and then you say, okay, well, Luis, go, go play shortstop now for us for a little while, or Sogard, for that matter. Um so there's there's a lot of moving parts, man, um, and that's and we're only talking about 2020, <laughs> which is like 45 games left of it. So we're not even getting to like beyond 2020. That's too scary at this point. Um, but even just for this year, there's so many moving parts. I think it should be pointed out that after the big night on opening night for Orlando Arcia, when he was the only Brewer who could hit Kyle Hendricks, he really hasn't done a lot at the plate. Uh, just seven hits since that three-hit game to begin the season. He's hitting 233, 281, slugging 300 since opening night. So I wouldn't say that Orlando Arcia has done really anything with the bat since opening day that gives you a lot of confidence in his ability to lock down that position. So that could easily be the solution with Urias, too, if they feel like they're getting a lot more OBP-wise from the Sogard Jerko platoon. I could easily see that being the way this all comes together. And then in that scenario, Hira still plays second base most days. Braun is the DH most days. And then Gamble picks up that time in the outfield. The other wrinkle here, of course, though, the trade deadline, a few weeks away, you could see this team adding. Like You could see a lot of teams trying to make additions at the deadline because you're not taking on the extra salary from veteran players for as long as you would during a full season. But you're still getting the impact that you know, they can bring you to the playoffs. They can help you in the postseason. And every time I look at this roster, I think there's no way that David Stearns will sit by, sit idly by and just let the trade deadline pass without doing something to shore this team up. And I think that something continues to be an upgrade at third base. But it also wouldn't surprise me if they got a veteran outfielder because veteran outfielders are easy to acquire at the trade deadline. You know, even if they feel good about Avi Garcia playing center field, we know he likes playing out there. Uh, getting one more option who they trust defensively more than Braun and maybe offensively more than Gamble, that seems like a pretty high priority now that maybe has moved to the top of the list. Yes, I'm glad you said that because you know I see all the time that the Brewers should add. We don't know what the we don't know what the market's going to look like, right? So, and, and that's one part of it. Then the other part of it is. Who are the Brewers going to trade anyway? Like it's not like you know they're not really armed with a very deep farm system here, where they have these this vast amount of intriguing prospects that people just can't wait to acquire. 
I mean, they got a few that I like, <laughs> but I think that they like them too, and they're trying to hold on to these guys a little bit. Um, so that's part of it. But the fact that you mentioned the outfield and, and even a veteran outfielder in particular is really smart because, like you said, those guys are typically available regardless. And so I'm not saying that they're not that they'll be able to acquire somebody all that great, but somebody that could be impactful who could help. Yeah, I could see that happening. I'm not sure. Like, the, I'm not saying they're going to get an all star here, but I mean they they get somebody who's a who's an above average or average major leaguer, and and in some ways, at least in terms of consistency, that could be an upgrade for this team. Yeah, definitely on the radar. Bullpen always upgradable, of course. Maybe back of the rotation if you find the right guy. I just think it's so hard to trade for starting pitching in season. We saw it last year. It was you know Jordan Lyles was the acquisition. It might be someone more like that than the sort of. Uh, frontline sort of starter to put up top with Woodruff, with Adrian Hauser, with the guys that have been pitching pretty well at the front of the Brewers rotation. But I do think we're going to see uh, an active David Stearns, as we often do once we get to the trade deadline here later this month. We're going to get to some more recent happenings with the crew in just a moment. But first, our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving with their Lawnmower 3.0 personal trimmer. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming, and the Lawnmower 3.0 is a waterproof cordless body trimmer that makes it safe and easy. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com with the code THEATHLETIC20. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one but two free gifts, a travel bag, which is a $39 value, and the patented high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code THEATHLETIC20. All right, Will, we're in the midst of a series uh, against the Minnesota Twins. The Brewers, I think, caught the Twins sort of just right in terms of missing Jose Barrios and uh, having Rich Hill on the injured list. The toughest pitching matchup of the three will be for the final game of the series, the rubber match on Wednesday night. Kenta Maeda takes the ball. And I think one thing that makes Maeda particularly difficult for the Brewers is that he's really effective at piling up strikeouts. And the Brewers are kind of doing that to themselves. Like even in matchups against guys who aren't necessarily overpowering uh, the Brewers have struggled with strikeouts throughout this young season, kind of bouncing between second and third league-wide and team strikeout rate, just a tick below 30% for the season. As you start to look at this roster, it's very surprising because you see Christian Yelich striking out a lot more than he typically does. You know, Keston Hira has gone a uh, small step in the wrong direction. Uh, Justin Smoke has really struggled with whiffs thus far. It's a lot of guys who are good, patient hitters carrying elevated strikeout rates so far. In your opportunities to jump on Zoom calls with Craig Council, what has his reaction been to this? How surprised are the Brewers uh, that they've had this much swing and miss in their lineup to this point? Yeah, his reaction was basically what your reaction was, that he was very surprised. I mean, I remember asking him the other day just about the strikeouts in particular because it wasn't just that the offense wasn't clicking or they were getting unlucky or whatever the case it was they were flat out missing pitches and that's what he said was the most surprising thing about the whole situation with the Brewers struggles to that point and they've still kind of carried over regardless of the couple of nice games they've strung together recently and it is surprising because if you look at the background of these guys some of those guys that you mentioned and there's a couple of others they've proven that they know what a ball and a strike is so it's not that 
And it, it's not as if the pitch recognition is always wrong either. It's it's almost as if they're like they're sitting there, they're waiting for it. It's not as if they're fooled all the time on a curveball or an off-speed pitch. They're just missing them. And so for me, I don't know. Part of me thinks that it's been a timing issue coming off the layoff and the, the postponement of that Cardinal series, uh, which was supposed to be the opening uh, weekend for Miller Park or the home opener uh, for the Brewers this year. And so that kind of threw them off. I can I can get along with that thinking. And, you know, the other part is that I feel like sometimes they're guessing up there at the plate too. And I think that's been the case with a couple of guys. I don't want to guess myself and be wrong in that area. But just by looking at it, man, you look at really great hitters like a Keston Hira, for example. Uh, he had an act the Twins on Tuesday night where he, he goes down striking out looking and the pitch was right there. It was, it was I think, a, a low fastball right in the zone. No debate. He knew it was a strike and just ends up taking it. And that just tells me, and I think it tells everybody that he was looking for something else, right? That's the only other explanation that could be given in that circumstance because he's a, he's a really good hitter. Um, he knows what a fastball looks like and knows what to do with them. So I think that pitchers are also very keen on trying to attack him high in the zone on pitches. And so that may be a reason why he's been struggling a bit with the K's. Um, you can go up and down the list of, of each guy in particular. Um, what I did like from somebody like Justin Smoke, for instance, though, was he was a bit more aggressive, I thought, in, in, the, in that breakout performance from him on Sunday, which didn't exactly carry over to the next day. And then he found himself back on the bench Tuesday. But it was at least a bright spot for his season. And I thought that it was good to see him just swing at first pitch strikes and drive them as opposed to getting deep in the count. And then either being susceptible to guessing wrong or getting a bad call against you or just flat out missing. Yeah, so I think the really interesting thing that you kind of hinted at is that we're talking about issues making contact inside the zone, right? Like Keston Hira as a rookie last season had a zone contact percentage of 76.9%. Early on here in 2020, he's down at 62.2%. That is a massive drop. That means he's swinging and missing on pitches inside the zone more often, which is just not what you'd expect. But the high fastball does seem to be a little bit of an issue for him. It's an issue for a lot of hitters. Pitch recognition as a whole is is kind of interesting. You could have a lot of different hypotheses as far as why that would change so much. Maybe advanced scouting right now is different without scouts in the ballpark, but you're still trying to build things based on data. You still have the data of how teams are attacking hitters. It could still be limited sample noise. That's a possibility at this point as well. Uh, but you look at Yelich, the underlying numbers for him too. It, it's not quite as extreme as the drop from uh, for Keston Hira, but there is a pretty good drop in his zone contact percentage as well. And he starts at a much higher baseline. If you look at Keston Hira year over year in that metric, this is a guy that's usually in the 87 to 88% range. If a ball is in the strike zone, Christian Yelich is going to make contact on it. He's down at 73.8% right now as well. I think the key difference here, though, both of these guys are, are seeing fewer first pitch strikes than I would have expected because... I have felt like Christian Yelich is behind in the count like the second he steps in the box every single time this season. That just seems like a recurring theme. It hasn't been as extreme as you'd think. In fact, it's a lower first strike percentage for Yelich this season than he's ever had at any point in his career. Uh, the other thing that's kind of interesting, too, is you look at these two players, the swinging strike rate overall is actually up for Keston Hira 
And it's already a number that was high as a rookie, 17.5% during his rookie season. He's up to 21.3%. So really just swinging through a ton of pitches, both in and outside the zone. But the increase in uh, whiffs inside the zone is probably the biggest issue right now. And I'm not sure how they fix that. I really don't know if that's just getting the timing down. And, and like you said, maybe the, the missed series against St. Louis coming out of summer camp also was just the break that the team didn't need because a lot of players have said historically it takes them about two weeks to feel really locked in and I do get the sense that every team's prep in summer camp might have been a little bit different you know it's not the same seeing other teams pitching even though if it's spring training even if you're seeing guys who are going to go to high a and double a seeing someone else's pitchers is different than seeing your teammates over and over again so I wonder how much unique prep maybe has shaped the Brewers slow start at the plate as well yeah, it's an interesting point that you make, too, just because the Brewers staff is so dynamic with who their pitchers are. One day you're getting Brandon Woodruff, the next day you're getting Josh Lindblom, and there's a drastic difference there, right? So I could see how that could be problematic for guys who are working on their timing. Um, you know, a lot of the stats that you had rattled off there, Derek, you know, what a lot of it tells me, maybe Keston is a different story in particular because he's a young player and you could maybe explain away some of those issues by saying just that, that he's a young player with some room for improvement and all that type of stuff. But the other part of it with guys like Garcia, Smoke, Yelich, of course, um, the guys who have struggled a bit in the early going so far is that they're probably due. Um, I just don't feel like they're going to continue to have those issues inside the strike zone like that. I mean, that's just, a lot of it's just been pretty extreme we can explain it of course and, and look at it and can, can see how it's happened but I, I do think that over time maybe it doesn't even out because of the length of the season being shorter I don't I wouldn't go that far but I, I do foresee in the near future these guys sort of getting hot at the same time I think that's kind of a, a rosy outlook on things too but just from a numbers perspective that's what should happen no there's not anything you can look at after 15 games and say this is who the player is like even just overall swing rates haven't stabilized yet so you could still look at just about anything and say you know what this is just a slump and if it happens in august of a typical season you're a lot less likely to notice it but when it happens over the first 15 games of a season you're hyper aware of it and then doubly so when you're talking about a season that's already a quarter of the way over like normally if we were in the third week of april playing game 16 on a Wednesday, we're not stressing out that much about this because the season's so long, and if it happens mid-season, we, just, we don't even notice it. Our minds don't look at stats that way very often, unless you're split, like leaderboard, viewing a, a 10, 15-game rolling window. You don't notice how good or bad someone can actually be over a particular stretch. So it is easy to sort of look at these numbers and think the sky is falling when it might just be the ebbs and flows of a season and a slow start for a lot of players. But it is strange to see multiple guys struggling with that same problem, making contact inside the zone, especially very good hitters like Hira and Yelich. Coming up in a moment, we'll break down the upcoming series against the Cubs. But first, a quick word from Indochino. All right, Will, so once this twin series wraps up on Wednesday night, the Brewers are headed back to Wrigley Field for a four-game weekend series with the Cubs. The Cubs enter play on Wednesday at 11-3. and 
Uh, eight and two in their last ten. They've obviously played very well since that opening series against the Brewers, and they've got a nice four and a half game lead over the Reds and the Brewers and the Cardinals, actually, who are still two and three and uh, currently sidelined by COVID nineteen. It's a great opportunity for the Brewers. You know, win or loss on Wednesday, if they come away hopefully with a win for their sake, they'll be back to five hundred. They could make up a lot of that ground. If they can get a series win in Chicago in that four-game series, put a little dent in that lead the Cubs have, it would go a really long way towards keeping things close here in the NL Central. Oh, no question. It's huge. And you add to the fact that it continues to get really important for the Brewers during that road trip afterward, after their trip to Chicago, because they got two really good teams after that and teams that they just saw, the Reds and the Twins, right? So it's you got to keep that momentum going for, for the Brewers because, I mean, if they if the reverse happens and they struggle against the Cubs, if they lose like three of the games or whatever or whatever nightmare scenario unfolds, they're suddenly looking – I mean, we were talking about the trade deadline. I'm not sure if the trade deadline would be able to help them out too much at that point. I mean, yeah, it probably still could just because maybe I'm overestimating the amount of games – um, because there would still be, you know, more than half the more than half to go, of course. But I don't know, man. I, I kind of go back and forth on the idea of like morale in this season being a thing, and just like without fans, with all this newness, with the the COVID nineteen protocol, you need wins, man. <laughs> like you just got to feel good about like what you're doing. I feel like sometimes, and so that to me is important, especially on the road. Um, some good some good pitching matchups, I feel like, and hopefully for the Brewers' sake, they could maybe get into that Cubs bullpen a bit because that's something that they were unable to do in their two losses against them in the opening series uh, of the season. And, you know, we've learned that the the uh, Cubs bullpen, it's not that reliable, uh, you know, to put it mildly, I guess. I mean, Craig Kimbrell has imploded more than a couple of times already this season. I'm not even sure. I guess they wouldn't even go to him at this point uh, for, for you know, a safe situation. Definitely not, but maybe not even in a high leverage situation before that, especially not against the Cubs lineup with their history against them. So, yeah, this is uh, this is important for, for Milwaukee for sure. Um, and you, you do like it from their perspective. I mean, they you know, Woodruff's going to be in the series. Um, he was able to pitch fairly well against them. Um, that first go around and his last start notwithstanding, I've liked a lot what I've seen from him and his pitch mix this year. And you just would think that the Brewers bat, it's only a matter of time before they get going. And, you know, what, what better place than, than, uh, you know, Wrigley Field for it. Yeah. Toughest pitching matchup of the series will be game one on Thursday. It's going to be Brett Anderson going up against you Darvish. Uh, Woodruff goes Friday against Tyler Chatwood. Chatwood pitched really well against the Brewers his first time out, pitched well in his second start. Got knocked around a bit by the Royals in his third start. So getting another look at him quickly maybe helps them kind of solve the puzzle a little bit. Uh, It's Adrian Hauser versus Alec Mills on Saturday and then Josh Lindblom against John Lester on Sunday. Uh, You're dead on with that Cubs bullpen. One of the worst bullpens in the league right now. It looks like Rowan Wick and Jeremy Jeffress are the two guys who uh, their manager, David Ross, will be turning to in those high-leverage situations. But if you can get to those middle relievers, if you can get a shot at Kimbrell, maybe in the seventh inning, he just hasn't figured it out. Hitters are sitting on his fastball and just punishing that pitch. He is a shell of the pitcher that he once was. So definitely the biggest weakness for this Cubs team is the bullpen, certainly an area that uh, Jed Hoyer and company will be trying to shore up as the trade deadline approaches. 
in just a few weeks. And you, we may look back thinking about how this week has started. The Brewers did a good job. It was a bullpen game for the Twins on Tuesday night. They got some unexpected contributions. Manny Pena with a big two-home run night. And Will, I always believe that when you have uh, struggling stars, and I would still say that we're in a, a slump phase for Christian Yelich, even though he's flashed some signs in the last few days of breaking out of it, um, the absence of Ryan Braun, like you need, you need secondary players to step up and, and have big nights. Manny Pena did that, and I think that second home run that he hit in that game, we may look back at that as kind of a pivotal moment that kept the Brewers uh, from falling into a prolonged slide, right? I mean, this is a really big stretch of schedule for them. They're going to see the Twins again next week in Minnesota, too. Uh, so trying to get through this Twin series, winning the rubber match uh, on Wednesday, at least getting a split, if not a series win against the Cubs, it's going to keep them right around that 500 mark and keep them in a position to make a big move if they do get hot. How refreshing was that to see, though, just from a Brewers player to show that sort of emotion? I feel like that's what's been lacking for this team, too. And it's kind of gone a little bit under the radar, but they just needed to show a little bit more emotion, I feel like. I mean, and I feel like almost that was evident from the beginning, beginning of the season in Wrigley Field. I mean, yeah, they were losing those games, and so... Look, I wouldn't be too thrilled or too excited about that either. And and the Cubs were that weekend. We saw them up on their dugout steps and getting it going. But I just feel like it's been a little bit of a, a, a small thing that could quickly evolve, like I talked about with a, the morale thing this year. So it was cool to see Manny Pena get up and get fired up for it. And not for nothing, but if you look back at the way that he ended last season and then you look at his offensive numbers, they're – you know, a little bit high up there for because of the amount of the games that he's played and the, the few at-bats that he's had. But if you just combine it and you look at like his last 60, 65, 70 games, he's a lot better than I think people think. And so I think that that platoon with him and Nervaez, people are quick to point at Nervaez and just say that he's the starting catcher and all that. But if you really look at it, you know, Payton gets a lot of starts for a for a guy that's considered a backup. And for me, it's almost as if it's like a, a strict platoon almost. And so they're getting production out of that uh, out of that uh, position defensively, of course, but it was nice to see them finally get some offense from it as well. I think we should also just take a moment to recall that this is a team that has a lot of new faces, like finding that chemistry, finding that energy, feeding off of each other. That takes some time. And when you have spring training get put on pause and you come back in unusual circumstances in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of guys getting into Milwaukee for the very first time, you know, you have new faces at almost every position. Narvaez wasn't here last year. Smoke wasn't here last year. Jerko, Holt, Sogard, uh, Avi Garcia wasn't here last year. You compound that with Lorenzo Cain's opt out. Like the general day to day makeup of the roster is just a lot different. So I think, kind of figuring out their own identity internally is something that's still happening. I know there are common threads with Yelich and Braun and Arcia and, and Hira, but it still takes some time, I think, to just feel like a cohesive team and maybe even more so in a year when uh, high-fiving and uh, being able to spend time together and different things are, are, are kind of thrown at the players in a way that makes the season so unique. So uh, maybe we'll start to see them gel. It's certainly a good opportunity for it right around the corner here in Chicago. 
That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Section 422. You can find Will on Twitter at Will Salmon. I'm Derek Van Riper. And again, you can scoop up a subscription to The Athletic at theathletic.com slash 422. Get 40% off. Get all the Will's coverage. Get all the league-wide MLB coverage that we have. It's really the best around. If you've got questions for us that you want us to get to in a future episode, feel free to send those our way via Twitter. And as always, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or any platform that allows you to rate and review the show, we'd really appreciate it if you took a moment to review this podcast. For Will Salmon, I'm Derek Van Riper. Thanks for listening. We're back with you next week from Section 422.